You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the 150th episode of The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Olivia Crimmel. Hello. Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. And back from long service leave, welcome Tim Burrows. Nice to be back, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Olivia will be talking to Antoinette Latouf about media diversity in Australia and the recent Senate inquiry. But first, the week's topics. Nine reports, $182 million net profit and pays back JobKeeper. Profit down but saving strong as WPP reports its earnings. And Facebook backflips on its news withdrawal. It's a big week of reporting. Nine was the first to release figures revealing the results of the half-year ending December 2020. It was a solid final report for outgoing CEO Hugh Marks with $1.2 billion in revenue and net profit up 79% to $182 million. Nine also managed to cut costs by 13% while Marks had some sneaky jabs at the competition a pretty good report to go out on as CEO, Tim. Yeah, look, you could not have scripted it better, really. At just before four o'clock last night, as the ASX was closing, uh, Nine's share price just ticked upwards just enough to take it up to a $5 billion. Let me give you that number again. $5 billion market capitalization for the first time in the company's history. So that was a pretty neat way to round things out after just over five years as, as a CEO. And obviously in that time, we saw Nine merge effectively take over Fairfax. Uh, we saw Nine fully take ownership of what's now the Nine Radio Network, but was Macquarie Media. Um, we saw the company reinvent itself as a TV business. So from a broadcast TV business to a uh, broadcast video on demand business and more to the point because of the future, a subscription streaming business. Um, and I guess in the numbers yesterday, we also saw nine, arguably like the other TV networks as well, certainly seven, begin to come out the other side of COVID. So yeah, pretty good set of numbers. Really good set of numbers, particularly from some sectors in nine, digital, uh, SVOD with Stan. How did you read those in in terms of were they the saving uh, grace for nine through COVID? Uh, Hugh also said that BVOD was quite hard to actually make the most out of uh, advertising-wise as well. So some interesting comments coming out there. But in the meantime, Nine Radio was down substantially as well. So digital really seemed to be carrying Nine. Yeah, and what's interesting as well is we, we, we've seen a couple of changes of reporting line as well. So for a while, the the the, the BVOD, so the ad-supported streaming video, was kind of listed amongst the publishing assets. And I think that was to actually have a bit of a growth asset sitting amongst all of these, you know, old-fangled print assets. But the thing is, publishing has gone quite well, actually. You know, they've, they've, they've stripped out 
a lot of the fixed costs around um, the print works because Nine doesn't own print works anymore. They pay other people to print their papers. So I, I wonder whether the re- one of the reasons BVOD is now going to be listed against broadcast TV uh, as part of that sort of package is, is to help lift that one up instead, which, you know, arguably is fair enough. Maybe that's where it should have been in the first place all along. So a little bit of, you know, you, 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 you try and have some sort of growth numbers all along, but, but, you know, Stan, uh, profit growing subscriptions growing and again the model of stan is very much once you hit a point where you get a number of subscribers most of the upside goes to nine and stan rather than the rights holders so they they they, they've they've kind of you know for now until there's another big battle of you know acquisitions for instance it's 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 mostly upside so you so you know you kind of you, you, you know you'll you'll know um probably how things are going to look for the next couple of years um which look you know which look pretty pretty healthy pulling out one more of those figures from the report stands a bit though rose 36.5 million uh rose to 36.5 million it's 161 percent jump of course the ceo of stan mike sneesby uh is in the running uh apparently for the ceo role at nine an announcement that we thought might have come out this week with the reporting, but didn't. There seems to be a lot of chatter in the market now, but I don't know if we're any closer to actually figuring out who's going to take that role. It definitely seems to be a strong result for uh, Sneesby and Stan. Liv, have you heard anything more on that front? Interestingly, I'm at the Future TV conference and that topic of conversation is very widespread. Uh, There doesn't seem to be anything more concrete at this point in time. We are hearing that an announcement is likely next week now that the financial results are done. Uh, not to steal any limelight from Mr. Hughes, of course. And, yeah, Sneesby, um, also Chris Jans at Nine, uh, both seem to be very frequent names touted for the role. Obviously, uh, the STAM results might lean the board in favour of Sneesby, but we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, look, at the one I'd Jim? throw in on that as well is the uh, potential external um, candidate, the name that seems to be coming up with a great deal of credibility is is. Carl Fennessy, one of the Fennessy brothers who were behind the success of uh, Shine, which became Endemol Shine, um, and you know really is responsible for at least every other big shiny floor show, reality show, um, and interestingly, maybe hasn't had direct um, exposure to the advertising market, or certainly not much, but has run run a big business and comes from quite a similar background to Hugh Marks in terms of having come up through the production sector. So, you know, so we've got, you know, we've got Fennessy with those sort of skills. You've got Chris Jans who has made a real success of the publishing arm of nine and before that Fairfax when everybody thought that newspapers were doomed. And you've got Mike Sneesby who has created company in stan that's worth more than a billion dollars on its own so three really really strong candidates but none of them have got all of the things uh that the perfect ceo would have in terms of experiences so um yeah i reckon i reckon the 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 board is genuinely still trying to puzzle this one out and i mentioned in the intro as well that there was a a couple of sneaky jabs uh against uh competitors it depends how you really want to take what was uh, said one of the interesting comments of course there was the uh, 
returning of uh, $2 million in job keeper. Uh, that was largely based off the fact that uh, Nine had uh, taken that for pedestrian and Nine events. But this was, of course, just after Seven uh, had announced that it wouldn't be returning the $33.4 million, I believe, in JobKeeper that it had. Are we surprised that those two big main media companies have gone different ways? In my uh, analysis, I, I wouldn't have seen it any differently because they are so diverse in the way they approach JobKeeper. But, uh, Tim, did you see it any differently? Look, the, uh, I, hey, there's some, you, you can see there's a little a little bit of politics with a small P going on because Nine didn't have that much, uh, it need that much in JobKeeper anyway. So it was a very easy gesture to make that maybe puts a bit of PR pressure on Seven. And thinking about it as well, let's remember what JobKeeper was for in the first place. It was to persuade companies with this money from the government not to panic about what was coming and not to get rid of people, not, you know, to, to save jobs. Um, now, that worked. The jobs were saved. So, yes, some organisations have chosen to give the money back. But on the other hand, if that money hadn't come through, probably these companies would have cut even deeper. So I must admit, I, I kind of think, you know, f- fair enough. I know that's not a particularly fashionable point of view, but, but yeah, I, 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 I kind of think that that JobKeeper money was there for a for purpose and it, it saved a lot of jobs and, and part of the deal wasn't give it back later. Well, that is exactly what James Warburton said as well, that it could have cost upwards uh, or up to 150 or so jobs had they not uh, taken that job keeper in the first place. Moving on, next up, we'll be talking about WPPAUNZ's results. This morning, WPPAUNZ released its full-year financial results, reporting a 32% drop in earnings before interest and tax to $61.9 million and net sales down 14% to $612.3 million. Debt was reduced from $121.4 million to $17.2 million and the holding group also managed to deliver $71 million in cost savings, including the $13.6 million received in government subsidies. Zoe, you covered this off. Were these results uh, expected for WPP? Yeah, I think all things considered, these are pretty good results for WPP. In terms of the sales figure, they said that it was in line with what they expected given that the SMI reported that in 2020 ad spend was back 15% and their results sort of reflected what the SMI had reported with a dip in the market in April and May and then activity picking up towards the end of the year. In terms of the EBIT, uh, they said that was in the top end of the market guidance they had set out in the previous reporting year between uh, $59 and $62 So those two figures, I think, were definitely what they had in mind. Cost saving was an interesting one to me. It definitely stood out both because of COVID and because of the transformation plan that Jens Monsees started at the beginning of 2020 before COVID set in. They said that they made substantial savings through employee pay measures like the uh, 
menu of pay cut options that they provided with staff that ran for several months, uh, the board taking a 20% reduction in its salary and fees for the first three months of the pandemic. Um, they saved $13 million from entertainment and travel and uh, not entering awards. And interestingly, the installation of the campus model in Brisbane, Perth, and Adelaide saved them $2.7 million. But what's interesting about that to me is that a lot of those cost savings are predominantly COVID measures. So I'm interested going forward into 2021, like what that figure will look like and how further changes to the transformation plan will affect that. I think overall, though, the figures paint a better picture of Jens Monsi's transformation plan at work and how all of those ideas in terms of bringing the brands together, reducing the number of agency brands, installing that campus model, the push towards tech and digital and data capabilities, how that's all come together in the in the last year. Let's talk about a campus model, though, because you mentioned in this uh, report that they were looking now to use that for Sydney and Melbourne, which was something he has said before that they were not looking to do because the market is too big in, in Sydney and Melbourne, the campus models that they've, or the campus model that they've put out uh, across Perth, Adelaide, Auckland, et cetera, would not work in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Has this changed? Is this a different campus model we're talking about here or, or is he changing tact? Yes. So when I spoke to Jens Monsies earlier today in what Mumbrella listeners will be able to see on our site tomorrow morning, Friday morning, um, he told me that the campus models in Sydney and Melbourne, that is happening. It's part of the next phase of this transformation plan, which they've titled the, the strengthening phase. And they're going to be long-term projects. So pr- looking at about two years to bring all of the agencies in Sydney together under one roof and all of the agencies in Melbourne together under one roof. So, They're building new buildings to put all of these agencies together in uh, so that they'll be custom built to encourage collaboration between the agency brands. And something that Jens Monsies stressed to me was that provides a lot of career opportunity and growth for the talent as well to, to move between agency brands as time goes on and gain different kinds of skills and experiences. And that also plays into another objective they laid out for the second phase of the plan, which is to scale the client relationships they already have. So he used KFC as an example of how WPP's agencies work end-to-end across KFC's marketing. And the intention is to bring more client relationships into that sort of framework. And Zoe, I'm something I'm curious about. When we say campus model, is this just PR spin for save a bunch of money by making everybody work from one ugly office tower? Look, you have a fair point, Tim. You do. And it does remind me of how Publicis in Sydney has brought all of its agencies under the one roof as well. And they have also said a lot of the same lines about encouraging collaboration between its agencies. So I do think that is a motivator, but I think you're right. There'd have to be some kind of cost-saving measure in having everyone under the one roof. We should talk about 
how this positions WPP AUNZ uh, in terms of the WPP PLC takeover, uh, proposed takeover. Uh, Zoe, was there any movement on that front? Yeah, so it was actually the only question asked in the inve- in the Q and A section of the investor call today uh, was an update on the takeover bid. Uh, they've been, they were quite tight-lipped on anything outside of what I assume was the party line. So apparently the takeover bid is on track with the scheme booklet dispatched in the third week of March and the scheme meeting expected in the third week of April. I pressed Jens Monsees on it a little bit and he stressed to me that the AUNZ business is in total strategic alignment with the global business and but wouldn't say too much on his opinion as to whether it should go through or whether it wouldn't go through and wouldn't really speculate on what would happen to the business if it were to go through. However, he did say that the AUNZ business is the what he likes to think of as the front runner for WPP in terms of the markets it operates in. And I did ask him also about what it would mean for those Australian brands that came out of STW before it merged with WPP. And he just said that he really values those Australian brands. He values the role they play in working with Australian clients, but nothing nothing too solid that gives away like what we could see going forward. Coming up next, would you believe it? Facebook has switched on news sharing in Australia again. Less than a week after publishers woke up to the news that Facebook had banned the sharing of news content from Australia, the tech giant has backtracked on the move. The turnaround came in light of the federal government making amendments to the News Media Bargaining Code, which was passed by Parliament this morning, with Facebook and Seven quickly announcing a deal in intent and other media expected to follow shortly. Liv, are there any winners now? I wrote in Best of the Week uh, very uh, solidly that I didn't think there would be any winners and I didn't think there would be a turnaround so quickly. Wow, was I wrong? Uh, how has this played out now? Are there any winners? Actually, everyone's a winner, it would appear. Uh, News Corp, Seven, Nine, the government, Facebook, Google to a certain degree. It looks like everyone's come out of this in a position that they were uh, better than a week ago. Uh, obviously, Facebook being the one that caused probably the biggest stir with its decision to remove news from Australian news feeds. Uh, Talking to a few people about this, it has seemed like some people think that, you know, Facebook did the right thing. They played their trump card early and they got what they wanted, which was amendments to the code. Others have said, no, the government's the one that's really come out on top because they've got Facebook to come back to the negotiation table. And as we've seen the deal with Seven, they're actually starting to spend some money as well. So it is a little bit of apparently everyone's a winner. With the exception being uh, small to medium-sized publishers, niche publishers, etc., who obviously were included in that news ban and are yet to actually start negotiations with Google 
uh, and Facebook. Um, there are some smaller publications who have already signed up to the Google Showcase, which was pre all of this kicking off. But when talking to a few of the other more independent publishers, they've said that they've only had very, very preliminary conversations so far and there has not been any dollars put on the table. And just to back up a little bit, the only way that this actually happened was by amendments being made to the code. What were those amendments that have actually allowed Facebook to reverse this decision? Yes, well, the government announced earlier in the week that they had uh, made some amendments to the code in in their negotiations with Facebook to get them back at the table. Uh, Most of that comes around the value of the deals. So previously it was supposed to be a sort of clicks and links um, style payment system, whereas now what they've actually said is that they want a lump sum written into their agreement. So I guess it gives them certainty of how much money is actually going to be spent on these media outlets for a set period of time. Uh, We don't know yet what that amount is in regards to, say, Seven and Facebook's agreement. We're still waiting for the detail on that. And we're yet to see any other of the large publishers in Australia announce those commercial arrangements with Facebook, although we understand it is imminent. The other big change that the government made was how it defined a digital platform and also notification to digital platforms when they would be included under the code. Uh, Senator Sarah Hanson-Young, who was one of the senators on the committee, she also put in a range of amendments. Uh, Those actually focused more on the publishers and requirements for the publishers, uh, the media companies or media businesses, as they refer to it in the bill, to provide... uh, feedback to uh, ACMA about how the money from those digital companies is being used to further journalism. So it will be interesting to see how that works in practice. There's some criteria around the timeframes for that when the media businesses have to submit that to ACMA and also when ACMA then has to publish those reports. So that that's an interesting addition from her. Um, Obviously, she was very vocal throughout the entire process in in terms of both questioning Facebook and Google about their businesses, but then equally the media companies. Um, A few people have come out with some recommendations as well, some of the other senators, and, uh, and the other big change that the government made was the time for the negotiations to be undertaken before they had to go to the mediation. So it was initially, I believe, one month, and now it's actually three, so they the digital platforms and the media organisations have three months for uh, in-good-faith negotiations before they then have to start playing by the government's code rules. Seven signed a, a deal of intent. Nine has announced that it won't be making any announcements until something is completely finalised. Tim, you've been following this, obviously, from day dot. How are you seeing this whole situation unfold? Look, to try and understand all of this, Certainly from the Facebook perspective, you have to step right outside of Australia. The thing that was bothering Facebook was, let's call it overseas contagion. You know, what uh, would other um, countries around the world do if Australia got away with it? That was what Facebook was doing with the uh, the news blackouts. Uh, I found it really interesting that in the last few hours, the, uh, the, the equivalent of the ACCC in the UK, the competition regulator there, talked about it as an example of monopoly behavior and the sort of thing that needs regulating. So that, I suspect, was at least part of the reason for uh, Facebook deciding to get back in. But let's call it what it is. The whole thing 
is a shakedown um, where the government leans on Google and Facebook to give some money to its friends in the media. They're absolutely too powerful. They absolutely need to be regulated because they're great, well-run companies that have got so good at what they do, they need to be um, uh, regulated for the market. But the way it's been done and I'm going to try, I'm going to try, give, give this metaphor a bit of a trial run. I might use it in my best of the week email on Saturday. I remember having a very naive at that stage, uh, friend of mine when I was in my first newspaper, who's now quite a well known BBC journalist. And he and his friend went to London, the big smoke one there. And they went to Soho and they walked into, uh, as a bit of an adventure, a strip joint. And when they got downstairs, they were, they were, they, they were shown the menu and they were invited to buy the lovely young ladies a glass of champagne. And when they looked at the menu, it was two or three hundred pounds a glass. And, uh, while they had a bit of time to think about whether they wanted to buy that, a couple of bouncers, quite large people came and stood by them while they made up their mind where they wanted to spend the money. Um, and I can't help but think that, uh, in this metaphor, <laughs> Google and Facebook are the kind of the naive young men with their wallets who have just decided, yeah, actually, yeah, we do want to uh, to buy this stripper some really expensive champagne that's probably worth a little bit more than, in reality, the news showcase really is worth. Um, so, yeah, the, there are everyone's a winner and everyone's a baddie in this one. I was wondering where you were going with that. Uh, just to wrap up, though, because you uh, you've spoken about this uh, a lot. Um, and you've done a few interviews on this as well. And I remember one of the interviews that you did, you were saying that Facebook was sending a message to the, to the other markets, uh, essentially. Has that kind of backfired on them now, being that this standoff was so short? Is that a good enough message? Look, I, I think it's a two-part message. One of them is if you do this, you might lose uh, access to news sharing, so be careful. and fair enough you know that message i guess has been has been heard around the world but in terms of the we will use our market power in a way which kind of seems anti anti competitive i think that message has been heard around the world as well so if there has been something counterproductive then then that's the counterproductive part of it big tech indeed Next, Olivia chats to Media Diversity Australia's Antoinette Latouf. Antoinette Latouf is an award-winning journalist. Her career spans television, radio and online in both news and current affairs. She is the director of Media Diversity Australia, a senior journalist at Network 10, and sits on the Judith Nelson Institute for Journalism and Ideas International Advisory Board. She's also currently writing a book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. The credentials go on and on. Antoinette, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. We're going to chat about the latest inquiry into diversity in Australian media. But before that, I have a confession to make to the audience. I've obviously known you since university days back at UTS. 
And can I say, I'm not at all surprised by all that you've gone on to achieve in your journalism career. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was that um, annoying, over-enthusiastic student at university that bothered everybody and just wanted to get stuff done. And I continue <laughs> to be that way. And, and we are grateful for it. Um, can I just start off by asking, why is it that you chose journalism and a career in media all those years ago? Um, it's something I've wanted to do since I was a child. I remember telling my parents um, I wanted to be a journalist and they kind of just nodded and said, okay. Um, I guess for me, I was always interested in representation and having a voice and giving underrepresented people a voice. I think, you know, seeing my parents um, settle into Australia, they were refugees from the Middle East, uh, watching a lot of the narrative as a young person about uh, refugees, a lot of the really xenophobic views. Um, and then also in the early 2000s when I graduated from uh, from high school, seeing all the rhetoric and the demonisation of Lebanese people and Lebanese gangs and, and I was really frustrated, A, coming from that community, but also it was just... Just these old white men who were stirring the pot and making things worse. And I realised I wanted to be part of the solution um, rather than just be angry at the problem. And I just thought, you know, more people like me should be part of the media. So we bring our lived experiences and our storytelling and our contacts um, to the industry. So that's that's what inspired me from a really young age. And you mentioned there, you know, um, old white men adding to the conversation. Did did you have any role models at the time? Was that something you ever looked for or struggled to find? Yeah, it is something I looked for, but I, I mean, I didn't have any role models uh, within my community or just within my circle. You know, my parents had very limited education. They didn't even finish primary school. Um, when I went to university, there were no females in my very large extended family who had a very uh, who had a university degree. We were very working class, so I didn't have any professional networks, and I didn't so I certainly didn't have anybody when I opened the newspaper or when I flicked on the television to see um, to see a path for me. Um, it's sort of something that I had to work to create myself, um, and so I realised um, the necessity a of me being in in the industry, but then helping others have someone to look towards and seeing that, you know, it is possible. Interesting. And in hindsight now, like what do you consider to be a good indication of diversity in media? Oh, look, it depends. Um, it depends what diversity you mean. I mean, diversity is a, um, a, re a really broad term. You know, the way I've approached it in trying to increase diversity, I talk about cultural and linguistic diversity, but of course it also extends to age, geography, you know, ensuring that we have rural voices, um, uh, people living with a disability. Um, and so I think a good indication of diversity, and I call it the the train carriage test, you know, or the elevator test. So you step into an elevator or you're in a, you're sitting in a train carriage and you look around and the sorts of people in that train carriage are generally a microcosm or a snapshot of the Australian society. So you might have someone in their 70s, you might have someone with a, with a disability, you're certainly going to have, uh, you know, at a range of people from different cultural groups. And I think when you see that type of carriage replicated in newsrooms telling our stories, then I think that's a pretty good indication of diversity. And right now, when you walk into all major newsrooms across the country, it is overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly middle class. I've only ever worked with 
maybe two people in my 15-year career who live with a disability, um, and most people are from the inner city. And I think that's really problematic when we're living in, you know, very polarised times where people are looking uh, to belong, people are looking to be represented, and our media is further and further away from doing that. Okay. So based on that um, conclusion about the current state of play, what what do you see as a sweet spot for Australia that we should be reaching for in terms of diversity in media? Well, I think um, we need to, in the first instance, we need to collect data um, on our workplaces. So unlike the United States, Australia doesn't capture its workforce, it's the demographics of its workforce. So, you know, when you come and you get a new job, you'll fill out your tax file, you know, tax file declaration form, you'll fill out your emergency contact. In the United States, when you do that with your bank details and your superannuation, there's also a section which captures the ethnic group you belong to. So that's just legislated, it's across the board. And so until workplaces actually capture the the diversity of their workplaces and have a plan to be more representative, so a co- uh, you know a, a very um, overarching, well known, well documented, and communicated diversity and inclusion strategy. Then they can say, okay, where do we fall short? This is this is this is what we're looking at in terms of executive at the executive levels, at the junior level, at the mid tier level, and then the Bureau of Statistics provides a pretty good um, yardstick in terms of how we're measuring up to Australian society. So right now. Um, I think the the ABC has some opt-in um, surveys, so you can fill it in and declare if you'd like to. Um, but I think it just needs to be industry standard um, because until we have that data, we don't really know how, how far we have to go. We don't really know if anything's working. Um, there's no point having diversity inclusion strategies if you can't review them because they may be in place for five years but nothing really changes at the executive level. Um, so that, I guess, for me is... And we need to see it as well as having clear policy and clear goals, which the ABC and SBS have released. They've got their diversity inclusions policies outlined. We haven't really seen changes in power structures. Um, and then with other media outlets, you might see really vague verbal commitments, sometimes a bit of social media support and perhaps some ad hoc programming, but not enough in terms of a cohesive approach to change. So while I'm encouraged by the conversations that are being had, um, most recently, in the, probably in the past 12, 12 months, it's not enough. And the US and the UK are certainly much further ahead than Australia is in, in championing this. That's, that's a really interesting point. I was going to ask you actually about, you know, given your extensive experience in newsrooms in a variety of newsrooms at public broadcasters and commercial, do you, have you seen anything that's a particularly useful tool in terms of encouraging diversity within those newsrooms? Look, to be honest, no, which is why um, after 10 years in the industry, um, a few journalists of colour and I got together to start Media Diversity Australia because we didn't think even the ABC, which um, in its charter and the very fact that it collects taxes from white and brown and black people, um, it didn't it didn't represent or speak to those audiences. Um, SBS to some extent because it does have a clearer charter in, in that regard, but all the levels of management and executive producers and news directors were white. So it's no point just having brown people on television if the power brokers and the editorial decision makers still very much mirror those at Channel 7, Channel 9 and, and, and um, News Corp. So, no, unfortunately, we haven't seen um, 
haven't seen it really working yet, um, which is why we, we took it upon ourselves to start this not-for-profit and run it while at the same time holding down our you know careers in the industry as journos and communications professionals. Yes, certainly um, a big task ahead of you all, but excellent work for the industry and for all of us who, you know, want to see more diversity in media. Um, just on that point, I might uh, bring us to a point of conversation that you know, has been in the headlines this week, obviously the uh, media diversity inquiry. Um, I just wanted to see what you and your colleagues at Diversity Media Australia think about that and, and how important you think it is for Parliament to investigate this issue? Look, if we had a say, we'd probably want it to be called something else, like media ownership review or media concentration and democracy to avoid a bit of confusion. Because when we talk about media diversity, we're talking about uh, a diversity of staff working in newsrooms. And like, I think there's been a little bit of confusion in the semantics because it's a media diversity Senate inquiry, but really what it's looking into is our cross-media ownership laws. Um, but obviously, it's something that is super important and we all support. You know, quality information is as important to democracy as clean water is to health. And right now, that water is pretty murky based on just how much influence a few key players have. And a, a lack of media diversity just entrenches the domination of that small number of loud voices in, in our public conversation. And all that does is further excludes underrepresented viewpoints, which is what we oppose, and it weakens um, the overall system. Uh, and right now there's a lot of distrust in the media and and I think when there's distrust, that actually strengthens misinformation campaigns as audiences turn elsewhere. So I'd argue that audiences are turning elsewhere because a you know there are a range of factors. Um, one of them being there's a general mistrust in mainstream media. Uh, secondly, because they're not seeing all of you know they're not seeing their stories represented because our media still continues to be so monolithic. Uh, and of course, thirdly, because of the digital players, the tech giants whose algorithms and whose influence um, has certainly tampered with the sort of news people get and people are often in this little bubble and just being fed stuff that they've already clicked on. Um, yeah, so we certainly, I think it's important and I think it's, I think it's definitely overdue. That's interesting you made that point about ownership versus obviously the diversity of journalists because uh, outgoing uh, CEO for Nine, Hugh Marks, made a similar comment at the inquiry saying that he didn't think media ownership is determinative of media diversity. He said it's the independence of journalists that creates media diversity. So it will be interesting to see if that does get elevated within the boardrooms yeah, of I, I these just, media companies. I just don't buy that at all. I mean, the Australian newspaper industry, it's dominated by News Corp. They've got uh, just under 40 54% of market share and nine has just under 16%. And then you look at that concentration of ownership and that's against a backdrop where there's been around, you know, more than 4,000 jobs across the industry that have been lost in the, over the past few years. More and more people are on short-term employment contracts, uh, more freelancing, it's more casualised, and there are projections for thousands more jobs to go. So a lot of experience and expertise has left the media industry. The pay is great, so it's not necessarily retaining amazing talent. And job security is so fragile. So how independent and willing to go against the grain will a single journalist be who's working at, say, a News Corp or NAR? given the amount of influence and power they have, given their options to go to a different uh, outlet is um, 
not huge given there are so few outlets and when overall there are so many journalists out of work. So I don't buy um, Hugh Mark's comments whatsoever. I think it's utter rubbish, to be honest. Um, last mm. year we almost lost the AAP Newswire and this service was by nature independent, unlike News Corp, and they launched their new centralised newswire. So we need more players and a variety of players. So that's regional journalism, philanthropic-funded journalism, commercial media and well-funded public broadcasting because I, I just don't think in this current envir environment we can really just rely on the goodwill of a single journalist to be independent because they're up against it. Interesting. I, I was just about to ask you then whether or not obviously this inquiry came about as a um, result of our former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd um, getting 500,000 petitions for the for a, a Royal Commission into um, News Corp's ownership of media in Australia and obviously that Royal Commission is still not uh, confirmed but is something like that going to have the actual impact that we're looking for in terms of encouraging diversity in media in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to backtrack for a, for a second here in terms of Rudd and Turnbull, who've been quite vocal here, and we know that Rudd started that online petition. And, it, you know, it, it would appear to those coming to the conversation at this stage that they're kind of being saviours of the industry. But I don't really buy that because when Rudd and Turnbull were prime ministers, they were in a position to do something about it. If anything, Turnbull made changes to the media ownership laws that empowered Murdoch to have even more power. So in, in, in 2000, I believe it was 2007, um, they scrapped the two out of three rule, the coalition government, and that means media moguls were now able to own television, newspaper and radio stations in the same market. Um, and that package, that government package also ditched the 75% rule, um, which at the time prevented 9, 7 and 10 from owning their regional affiliates due to restrictions on TV networks broadcasting to more than 75% of the population. So I think it's really interesting that Turnbull now comes and is vocal about this, given you know it was his it was his uh, government who didn't do anything about it. If anything, made it easier um, for cross media ownership. And also, when Rudd was in power, he developed a close relationship with who was then the editor in chief of the Australian, Chris Mitchell. And Chris Mitchell's written about this in his book and has explored you know, the personal relationships editors should or shouldn't have with politicians. And he admits in that that he became rather too close to Kevin Rudd um, in the lead up to when he became leader. So I think, well, it's really interesting that they're being so vocal now and, and, and you know, trying to put themselves forward as those with solutions and answers when they know when they were in power that they didn't use their power. If anything, they they use their power, they, can, they fed into the machine, into the beast that they're now trying to tackle. Um, anyway, I just needed to, to get that out because I think I'm, I'm a bit frustrated how, in terms of how they're positioning themselves now, because it's a little like a little too little, like a little late, I think, as prime ministers to now stand up when you don't have power and make a lot of noise. Um, sorry, but then to go back to your earlier question, will this have the impact? Well, in terms of a Senate inquiry, it doesn't have the impact of a royal commission. The Senate inquiry gets a bunch of senators from um, across uh, the political spectrum. 
anyone can make a submission. I think to date they've had 800 submissions. Uh, it could be, it'll be news outlets. It can even be individuals with an interest. They review it and make a bunch of recommendations to the government, which the government can then ignore. Uh, it'd be interesting if um, the, uh, the Senate inquiry recommends a royal commission because a royal commission has more powers to investigate. It goes for longer and it also um, has more weight to, to change policies. Uh, right now, the Senate inquiries, a bit of a talk fest, which could go nowhere um, if the coalition decides to ignore it. So, I mean, it's I guess it's good the conversation's been had, but I'm I'm not entirely sure it's going to change all that much. Mm, that that is a interesting point, and your point about obviously Rudd and Turnbull as well, who are both you know middle class now, quite wealthy white men. It does seem quite ironic, doesn't it? Yeah, and who did who benefited from the the media concentration when they were in power, or who added to it? Um, I think it's yeah, I think it's an interesting. Yeah, people can have a change of heart and want to do better. So maybe I shouldn't be so cynical. Um, but this is putting a lot of pressure on Scott Morrison to do something when they failed to when they were in that were in that chair. Mm, interesting. And so from your perspective, um, and and perhaps the Media Diversity Australia's perspective, what advice do you have for companies, CEOs, editors, uh, agencies, etc., media agencies, when it comes to encouraging diversity? Is there is there a guideline? Is there a, a recommendation? Yeah, so I guess one of the, f- the first things I would um, suggest to anybody who's listening, uh, Media Diversity Australia last year partnered with four universities um, and Google News Lab and the Journalism Union on a, kind of a landmark study assessing um, the state of play in terms of cultural diversity in newsrooms and gender. Um, and then it made a whole bunch of recommendations for how things can change. I mean, we took television because it's a visual medium, but this, the sorts of uh, recommendations and findings really speak across different mediums and more broadly across the media and agency world. Um, and some of the things that it recommends um, is to, you know, make the case for diversity. Um, and that's really getting everybody on board from the top down as to why diversity is important. It's, it's, it's pretty ineffective if people at the board level say it to feel good about themselves and pat themselves on the back. If there's fear and resistance among little management, if there's, you know, people who are unsure entering the industry, if they'll never get in because they're not diverse enough, the case really needs to be made top down. And one of the things I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the recommendations is to collect data on cultural diversity. You really need a snapshot of where you're at because sometimes the figures are sobering. Like even though you only need functioning eyes to see how Anglo, how white our television news industry is across the board, these figures still shocked people. They shocked people working in the very newsrooms. People have blind spots. When you're accustomed to something and you're part of the problem, it's actually hard to identify it often. So collecting the data, um, establish targets. I think you need to have really clear targets as to what you're trying to achieve. And some of the findings uh, when we looked at the UK and US, some of the um, media outlets that had most success had uh, one in particular had targets attached to executive bonuses. So there was an incentive to actually meet these targets. Uh, one of the things that often gets ignored, even though the data is mountain high um, and the evidence, the economic benefits of a more culturally diverse workforce, they're more innovative, more profitable. Um, you're likely to have staff like better staff retention. So if you don't believe in the moral or philosophical case, then just think about the bottom line. Um, 
And then you, just to prioritise diversity in the government's approach to recruitment and promotion, it has to be a concerted effort. Um, it can't just be, oh, well, nobody applies and we just hire the right person for the job, which is often what we hear. Um, and if nobody's applying, um, well, then you need to reassess your pathways. You need to reassess um, your recruitment process. People are probably not applying because they probably don't ever think they'll get a job because they don't see themselves reflected because they don't see a path for success or probably because they've heard of a whole bunch of other juniors who've attempted to go in and left disheartened um, over, you know, discrimination, overt or covert uh, and not seeing a pathway to success. So I'd really love to see a vibrant ecosystem of diversity um, that showcases different perspectives and reaches different audiences and in terms of the the makeup for major publishers, you know, I think there, as I mentioned earlier, different players appeal to different audiences and have different functions. So News Corp and Nine, I understand that they have to balance profitability and commercial appeal and entertainment for broader audiences. But then public broadcasters such as ABC and SBS, they can do more investigative work and perhaps content and serve content to audiences that otherwise might be um, overlooked or underrepresented. And then you have, you know, we've got the conversation, which is philanthropic funded. Um, You have Mumbrella, which is, you know, industry focused. There's There's a role for different players approaching different audiences. And I think the more players we have, the better. And the better, the more representative those teams are, the better our audiences are for and the more enriched they are in the content that's provided. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a big ask, is it, Olivia? <laughs> what I was just about for? to say, uh, <laughs> there, there is a very, very in-depth list there. <laughs> Look, uh, ideally we want as many players as possible and I think the government's doing what it can in terms of um, holding Google and Facebook to task to ensure that they're helping to fund um sustainable journalism um, we need uh, you know we need the ABC to continue to be funded well because we need that independent public broadcaster so important um, and then whoever's left standing needs to ensure that those who who they hire connect with and, and reflect their audiences um, so yeah it is it is a challenge but I, I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm, I'm not giving up well that's great to say and knowing your um, perseverance I have no doubt that we will see this topic become you know more and more significant and get higher up the uh, echelons of those media companies as it becomes a more of a business matter for them and they uh, and obviously goes to you know their overall uh, service to the public so I look forward to seeing that. And uh, yeah, everyone, if you're looking for more details, please reach out to Media Diversity Australia, I imagine. Yep, absolutely. Happy to hear from you. And so this is not just entirely a whinge fest. Um, I do think the government has been great in you know, holding firm with, with Google and Facebook and really trying to do something here. I mean, I know it's not perfect. I know we're a small market. I know Facebook pulled that, we'll, we'll rip your news off our page stunt. Um, but I do think that Frydenberg and the Morrison government have done a good job in trying to negotiate this and pave the way for more sustainable journalism. Well, thank you so much again for joining us, Antoinette. Really appreciate it. I know how hectic your schedule is and you're juggling many, many things. But once again, thank you for joining us on the Mumbrella cast. Thanks so much for having me. 
And that's it for this week. But before we go, the Mumbrella Awards are back and they're in person for 2021 to celebrate the best work and talent across the marketing, advertising, media, production, PR and communication sectors. Despite the challenging year, the past 12 months has been packed with groundbreaking work. So be sure to enter your agencies, teams and campaigns for a chance to secure one of the biggest industry accolades of the year. With the first entry deadline on April 9, start the process now to ensure you create the best entry possible. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash Mumbrella Awards for more information. That's it for this week, though. Thanks, everyone, for joining me and stay tuned next week for another episode of the Mumbrella Cast. Thank you.